0: What's up everybody, welcome to Momentum Online and welcome to week three of our series, Anchored in Hope. Now, this is a family series, but it's also a series about relationships and Jesus. And so I promise you, no matter where you're tuning in from and what stage of life you find yourself in, there's something here for everyone. Now, the the series comes from this verse in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 6:19, we get these words. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, Firm and secure, and that's kind of the heartbeat of the series. It's it's kind of that anchoring principle here. Our hope in Jesus can be an anchor for us, and so that is our desire in the series. See, in a world where it's harder and harder and harder to know what you can actually build a life on, in a world where things are confusing and changing rapidly, and you don't really know where to look, we want the hope that we have in Jesus to be an anchor for us, for our families, and for the children that we're raising as well. That is our goal in this Anchored in Hope series. And so I'm gonna pray and I'll tell you a story. God and Father, we just ask that you would move in us today uh, through this camera, into uh, phones and laptops and computers and devices through podcasts. Lord, it is your word and your spirit, and so we know anything is possible. I pray that you would use your word and the power of your spirit to bring these words to life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll tell you a story. In 1971, a young woman who was a singer songwriter named Lori Lieberman was in LA and she went to a nightclub called the Troubadour and she saw Don McLean perform for the very first time. You you know, bye-bye, Miss American Pie. She She sat through the show and found it to be so intimate and so engaging that she went home that night and wrote some words in her journal. As a matter of fact, we have them to this day because they found the journal. It says this, I felt all flushed with fever, embarrassed by the crowd." I felt he had found my letters and read each word out loud. I prayed that he would finish, but he just kept right on. These words were so poetic. Her friends and her turned this into a song and produced it. And just a couple months after that performance, this song was being circulated in L.A. County and, and through the local radio stations. Now, they decide to feature the song on an airplane. Uh, back in the day when you were flying and they would just play music for everybody to listen to, pre-headphones, pre-devices. They would play songs and feature different groups and musicians. And on this airplane, on a particular day in 1973, there was a young lady who was a talented, classically trained singer named Roberta Flack. And she hears this song that Lieberman had created and she's moved by it instantly. She pulls out a napkin and in the airplane, she begins writing out the musical score the best she could understand it. She asks them to play it again for her and writes it out. By the time the plane lands, she knows she has to produce this song. So she goes to a payphone and she calls a friend of hers named Quincy Jones and says, Quincy. You've got to put me in contact with the people who wrote this song. He does. And just a few weeks later, she's sitting with Lieberman and the other writers, and she goes, guys, I think I can make something out of your song. And she does. In 1973, she releases a song called Killing Me Softly. I wish I could play it for you, but you might be familiar with it. I know I'm familiar with it because in 1996, A group named the Fugees, headlined by the young talent Lauren Hill, picked up the song and decided to remake it. It was a smash hit. I know this personally because I remember the first time I ever went to Sam Goody. Kids, you'll have to Wikipedia that. I went to Sam Goody with some allowance I had saved up. I bought a single cassette tape and on one side of the cassette from the Fuji's was the song Ready or Not and on the other side of the tape was Killing Me Softly. The song was a hit and everybody loved it. It was incredible. Now, you might be asking, What does this have to do with Jesus? And I'll tell you. Now, I got to say something here. Some of you are about to be offended by what I say next because what's coming next is going to make you realize how old you in fact are. Here's what I want you to see. If we map these things on a timeline, you would quickly see from 1973 to 96 and 96 to 2021 where we are today, More time has passed between the Fugees and today than between the original Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly, and the Fugees. The Fugees remade the song 23 years later. Here we are 25 years after that. If you liked Killing Me Softly and you remember that album, that was 25 years ago. And I want you to take a little time out and I want you to think about specifically how much things have changed in this 25 years. Could you imagine going back to 1996 and trying to explain to yourself for other people what's going on in the world today? In 25 quick years the internet is everywhere and you would have to explain to people, no it's not just on that little modem with a giant comp- compact computer that sits on a desk. We have the internet everywhere. It's on our phones, you can go to coffee shops, you can have internet where you want. And there's now this company called Amazon and they don't just sell books. They can bring anything you want to your house in like two days. And I'm pretty sure they're trying to take over the world, but it's nice to have your groceries and anything you want right away. And you know what? We can video call on our phones now. We have these Phones, and they're not just like pick up the phone and dial phones. There's a screen on them. And in that screen, you can see high res video of your friends. And that's come in really handy because there's this pandemic and it doesn't want to go away. And so now we can talk to each other from other places. You guys, I want you to just think about how much has changed in these 25 years. And I want you to think about how these changes... In culture, all these changes sociologically, psychologically, technologically, and spiritually have changed what it means to grow up as a young person in our culture. And I don't want to be a downer online today, but I simply have to tell you this. All of the changes we've experienced in these 25 years are affecting our children in dynamic ways and not necessarily for the best. I think you might have heard us talk about this at other points in time, but the typical school child today reports the anxiety levels of a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. The average age of exposure to pornography is uh, now 11 years old. As many as 93% of boys and 62% of girls see pornography before they turn 18. The Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology and Social, uh, social Media it, it did a study and they documented it to be tied to levels of higher anxiety, narcissism, depression, loneliness, And in our culture today, more and more young men are opting out of college and the idea of ever raising and having a family. Now, all of this combines to make the world that our children are going to grow up in a very unpredictable one, one that can feel chaotic and full of disorder. And again, I don't want to be a downer, but the way things are happening now are making it more and more common for young people to experience emotional health issues like anxiety, depression, cutting, and other complicated matters like prescription pill abuse, binge drinking, same-sex attraction, getting trapped in emotionally or physically abusive relationships, and plenty of other things. And today, guys, I want to sit in full view of the fact that it's probably not if your kid will come to you with something that you didn't see coming or something that you didn't expect, it's probably when. And my goal today is to train you in what to do when you don't know what to do. When you get the phone call you didn't see coming from a school administrator, when your kid pulls you aside and says, mom or dad, we gotta talk, I can't deal with this anymore. I wanna train you specifically on what to do when you don't know what to do. And to do that, we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had, Um, a very intimate encounter, a very sensitive encounter, and a very unexpected encounter. And we're going to learn from him what to do when we didn't see it coming. Now, I got to tell you something. If you're new to Momentum or Momentum Online, Jesus is everything to us. He's our guiding light. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our hope. In Him is life. And that life is the light of mankind. In Jesus, there is light and life. We build all of it on Him. And so I'm not going to give you some suggestions today. We're going to learn from our teacher, Jesus Christ, and see what we can learn from Him about how to lead our lives today. That's where we're going. If you've got a Bible and you like to follow along, uh, it'll be here on the screen for you as well. Luke 8, verse 40 says this Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Jesus responds. He says, yes. He says, I'll go help you. That's a whole story. <laughs> there's, gonna be, there's, there's a lot of story we're looking at today. Jesus is on his way with this synagogue leader and a big crowd around him heading to do another healing and to heal this man's daughter. And then this word continues and it says, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And there was a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him And touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And oh, if we had more time today, I would stop right here and I would tell you how terrified and frozen with fear this woman must have been. This issue of her bleeding was a a female gynecological issue. She wanted this to be a secret. It was sensitive. It was intimate. She wanted to go in that day, touch Jesus's cloak, get healed, maybe just a wink from Jesus, maybe just some eye contact that says, go ahead, you've been healed, and confirms for her that her wish has come true. She wanted this to be a private moment, but Jesus stops everything, and He says the words, who touched me. It says, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. Then the woman, seeing that she could, not, she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And oh, if I had more time, I would unpack so deeply and so powerfully these words right here. Daughter, your faith has healed you. See, Jesus stopped the crowd that day because he didn't want to just heal this woman. He wanted to love this woman, restore this woman and redeem her pain. But we're talking about what to do when we don't know what to do. And there's a lot of Jesus here. And so we're going to follow his model and his example. And the first thing I want you to do is observe the fact that the woman knew she could come to Jesus with this problem. This was sensitive. This was scary. This was intimate. But there was something about Jesus that made this woman know she could bring it to him. Let me tell you this, parent. In your household, every home is conditioned to either, or is, sorry, let me start over. In every home, kids are conditioned to either bring their shortcomings or bury them. In your home, your kids are conditioned to bring their shortcomings, their problems, their failure, their fear, their sins or they're conditioned to bury them and hide them from you. If we want to be families that are anchored in hope, we need a culture in our homes where children bring things to us. Here's why. The word is influence. When the bottom falls out of your child's life, when something unexpected happens, when they really go through it, you have no influence with them if they are hiding the very thing that they need help with from you. So we wanna build a culture in our homes where children bring things to us and they don't bury them and hide them away. How do we get there? I'll tell you a few things. Number one, building and bring it home. You have to make the most of every reaction. Here's what I mean. Every single time you react to your child, they're keeping a log in their mind of how you will react to them in the future. The time that they forgot to take out the trash or thaw the meat for dinner. The time when they accidentally let the cuss word slip. The time when they told the story that was a little off color. The time when they did the thing and you were upset with them and all of those things. The time when they let you down. The time when they got too loud. They are observing your reactions, and taking note, and they are looking at them and they're going, okay, if that's how they react to this, when something real goes down in the future, I do or do not want that reaction, and so I'm watching. What that means, parents, is you need to develop a good poker face in Jesus' name. Let nothing surprise you. When the second grader comes home and talks about the kids who are using the F word at recess, you smile and you go, oh, interesting. Interesting. When your sophomore girl comes home and tells you what the boys were yelling across the street to the girls as everybody was walking home, you smile and you say, Yeah, how do you feel about that, honey? But we don't overreact because they're watching. And these reactions are shaping for our children whether or not they will come to us in the future. How do we build a bring it home? We talk early and often. You set a culture in your home where you talk about everything. In your home, you make it normal to talk about all of it. Bodies, development, attraction, romance, maturity, body hair, whatever it is. If you keep an ongoing conversation going, and trust me, I get what that means. I've got two two daughters who will be teenagers in a few quick years and I understand what that means. But if you make a habit out of talking about everything, When something comes up in your child's life, the normal thing for them to do will be bring it to you. You start talking about everything. Number three, you share your struggles. And I think pretty much know this by now, but I just wanna reiterate the old model of, I gotta look good and act perfect and I can't let my kids see my weakness or know when I mess up or things that I've done in my past. It just isn't working anymore. And I get why people select that model. I don't want my kids to see the things I do or have done because that might give them license to do those things for themselves. But that model is just simply broken. I don't know if you've heard about this yet, but there is a (laughs) mental health crisis on the campuses of Ivy League schools. And here's why. Uh, As a matter of fact, they are experiencing double the suicide rates of other public schools and other uh, campuses across the nation, why? Because you have these children being raised in homes where there's no room for weakness, success is our only option and we cannot fail because that's not what people like us do. They go to a high pressure environment that starts to cave in on them around sophomore year and they have no one to turn to because they've never been taught it's okay to go back home and talk about their weaknesses. And so some of them, Find the only way out is to end it all. A better model is authenticity. A better model is being willing to share your weaknesses and your struggles with your kids. Here's why. Authenticity creates approachability. In our home, when we have to have big, scary conversations in our workplaces, we tell our kids about it. Brick got yelled at by a doctor in the hospital yesterday, not the other day, and had to go and confront somebody who has way more power in that structure than her and do it in a way where she would be stood up for and where these issues wouldn't continue into the future. And we call it slaying dragons. And we tell our children, hey, I have to go slay dragons today, and I'm terrified of it. But we're being real. And we're letting them know it is okay to share fears and struggles in this This authenticity creates an approachability, and I'll tell you why this matters, Jesus follower. When you are approachable, you look like Jesus. When you are approachable, you are a reflection of Jesus to the people who see you day to day in your home. Now, let's go back to Jesus because he does something else that's crucial for us to understand here. In Luke 48, 47, it says, In the presence of all the people... She told why she had touched him, that's Jesus, and how she had been instantly healed. And then he, that's Jesus, said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, there's something powerful that happens here. Your faith has healed you is what Jesus chooses to say. And Jesus was very careful to select these words because there was a tradition and a superstition in this day that the magical clothes of rabbis were so holy that they possessed a healing power. She grabs the edge of his robe because she believed in this superstition. If I can touch that robe, I'll be healed. Jesus is stops everything and he goes, hey, it wasn't the robe that healed you. It was your faith. He made sure that the situation was blanketed and saturated in the truth. He made sure that the truth was being spoken in these moments, not superstition or exaggeration. And that's a powerful principle in your parenting when your child comes to you with something you didn't expect. What does that do? What do we do with that? I tell you this. I say be slow to diagnose a problem. What I mean is symptoms do not always indicate a pattern or pathology. What I mean is when your kid comes to you and they're very worked up and overwhelmed, your mind does not have to run to uh, a chronic generalized anxiety disorder in a teenager. And I tell you this, and I tell you to be careful with going there because you can easily turn one problem into two. Here's how I know this. You ever have a problem, like a health issue? Maybe you had a little a cough and COVID had just come and you're like oh no is this it and 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 you you have this health issue and you got the earache and so you get on WebMD and you start scrolling and then about 15 minutes later just scrolled through all these ideas and symptoms and what it could be and causes and effects and all of a sudden you've got a brain tumor and you're freaked out about the brain tumor and so you got to get to the doctor's office and you get to the doctor and he goes oh yeah you just need to start using q-tips more and there was no tumor there's no need to worry But you pathologized and you took one problem and you made it two. There was the earache and then along with it was the mania and the panic about what it could actually be. And I'm telling you, that is so destructive for young people. And an anxious day does not make an anxiety disorder. A sad day does not make a depressed kid. A problem evening doesn't make a kid with behavioral issues. Same-sex attraction does not mean your kid has chosen to be a lifelong homosexual. As a matter of fact, the the kids I know personally who have walked through those things, nine times out of ten, what they were experiencing is a deep craving for connection and acceptance. And as parents, we do well to wait and watch. I am not saying ignore medical advice. I'm not saying that going to the doctor is the wrong thing to do. I'm saying be slow and make sure you're dealing with the truth. Well, let me give you a better way from Jesus. We've talked about this briefly, but if you look at his response, it says, Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter was the key word there. I believe she needed this word as much as she needed the healing that day. See, her disorder left her a social outcast, left her somebody on the outside, not loved, not cared for, not concerned for, but a stranger in her own town with few friends by her side. Jesus knew she didn't just need to be healed, but underneath the surface she needed to be loved, accepted, and cared for. Parents, what do we do with that? What do we do when we don't know what to do? You notice the need underneath? I'll tell you something. Your child has three great needs. A need for security, for significance, and for strength. And they will stop at nothing to get these needs met. And neither will you. And so what do you do when the phone rings and it's unexpected? What do you do when the talk happens and you weren't prepared for it? You take a deep breath and you realize that you're talking to a human being who's in desperate need of security, significance, and strength. And you look through your child through the lens of these great needs and remember they're just trying to make it. High-level parenting, Jesus followers, you get proactive with these needs. You know, sometimes they say the best defense is a good offense. You want to play offense with these words? You make sure your child's tank is full of security, significance, and strength. Make sure they find that in your relationship with them. But better yet, make sure you point to Jesus as the ultimate source of security significance and strength make sure from an early age you show them you leaning into Jesus for security significance and strength make sure you know that purpose flows from Jesus that care and concern being enough flows from Jesus that getting through life and having what it takes flows through Jesus into the life of your kid and you are putting an armor on them that will protect them in the culture around them now let me wrap on this Underneath all of this is a single word. It really is the theme today. It binds it all together, and it is an essential element in having a family that is anchored in hope. The word is grace. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You respond in grace. What do you clothe your home in day in and day out to protect your children? The answer is grace. What gets you through in a world as crazy and unpredictable as this one? The answer is grace. What is the greatest parenting strategy in 2021? The answer is grace. In this great book called Grace-Based Parenting, the writer says this, The most distinguishing part of the Christian faith is grace. That wonderful gift offered by God to undeserving people like you and me makes us fall in love with the Savior. Grace is what attracts us to Him, that's God, and confirms His love for us over and over. God's grace has the power to transform the most hardened, indifferent soul into a person spilling over with kindness. If our Heavenly Father is the perfect Father, And the primary way that he deals with us as humans is through the power of his grace. It stands to reason that grace forms the best template for bringing out the best in our children. Let me take all that and make it simple. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You treat your children like God first treated you. You're here today because of his grace grace. By his grace, he was patient. By his grace, he was kind. He was humble in his love towards you. By his grace, he was there for you the most when you deserved it the least. By his grace, he didn't give up on you, and he still hasn't given up on you. By his grace, he pursued you. By his grace, he sent a son to die for you, to give you a new name and identity. By his grace, he loved you into his family. And by God's grace, you have gotten from where you were to where you are today. And it was his grace that carried you. And that grace will do the same for your children when you pour it onto them. Go in that, friends. Love you. Have a great week. Peace.